Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor as well as the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be a part of the program, then you can always uh, contact me on any of the contact links that are uh, in the description of the show. You could always call the listener hotline at 303 303- 832-0217. And I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you, just, you just leave a message right there, and boom, I'll put you out here on the uh, on the old show. Uh, on the show today, uh, I'll be speaking to Diane Dandineau. And Diane is the CEO of the uh, company called iPower Alliance. So the little I, kind of like iPhone, iPower Alliance, about where we're going to charge our electric vehicles that are eventually coming to a road near you. While you're going to be out and about, especially when you're far from your home charging station, that's going to be a major issue with the country going electric in the next 10 to 15 years. Where are we going to charge our cars uh, when we're not at, at home? And how much of a charge can these vehicles hold right now? They can't hold more than what, three or 400 it's it's all based on kilowatt hours of electricity and how much it, you're going to see the the range right well it all depends on temperature it all depends on how hard you're driving it if you're driving it in a city or on the highway up hills down hills all that kind of stuff so there's really a long a, a very large variance of how that uh, how those kilowatt hours in your in your battery are uh, being used up I can I, I know because it's because uh, when I full, have my car fully charged, it says it's about forty to forty-five miles. But it also depends on what the temperature was and uh, if I'm driving up hills or or it's so or how hard I'm driving it, uh, and, and it will just go down. So there there are a lot of challenges. It's different than when you're driving a gas car and you see the gas range because usually you're driving at a you know fairly regular, you're going to get anywhere between, let's say, 20 and 25 miles a gallon. It's not going to vary uh, too terribly much. It does vary a lot with electric vehicles. So one of the major issues is where we're going to charge our vehicles when we're out and about, especially uh, if we're on a road trip, going to a state park, whatever whatever you want to be doing. Um, And and it is different because you can't just stop at a gas station like you can now, and uh, 10 minutes later, you're filled up, and boom, you're on the road again. It actually takes time to charge the electric uh, battery in your charge plug-in uh, uh, car. Now, there are different styles of chargers, and uh, we'll get into that with Diane here in just a little bit. It's like, how are they going to do a cannonball run with an electric car, right? I mean, you, you know the cannonball run? We've actually talked about the cannonball run, where I think they go from Boston to... Uh, uh, Santa Monica, I think that's right, uh, and they try to go as fast as they can all the way across the country, um, and they they do it now with gas cars. I don't know how they're going to do it. Well, I wonder who the first person's going to uh, how how long it's going to take them in an electric car um, to yeah to do the cannonball run. Anyway, I'm going to have uh, Diane here in uh, on the line in just a minute. But first, I wanted to answer this question. That came into the Driving You Crazy inbox. It comes from Jackie in Longmont, Colorado, who writes to be saying, What's driving you crazy? Why do they put grooves in concrete roads? Seems like it not only throws the cars around, but wears out our tires more quickly. I can't see that it helps with ice or heavy rain, only makes it worse. Well, the main reason for those lines, Jackie, is for water drainage. Concrete, for all practical purposes, 
is a non-porous substance when it comes to rainstorms. So those grooves help disperse some of the rainwater that is on the road and it helps it dry out faster. Asphalt or blacktop is more porous than concrete. It has a higher capacity to absorb water, so there's no need for the grooves. And if you noticed after a rainstorm, if you're driving on either the asphalt or a, a concrete road, you'll see the concrete roads will dry out faster than the asphalt because the asphalt's holding more of that moisture. And according to an article in USA Today that I found, the lines in the concrete were actually first started as a solution to a problem that NASA engineers needed when they were landing the space shuttle on a wet runway. You're in Florida. Well, no, I guess they they took off from Florida. They landed in uh, California. But I guess they would sometimes land in, in, in Florida. Anyway, uh, they said that the requirements for landing space shuttles led NASA scientists to do extensive research on minimizing hydroplaning on runways. So they discovered that if they cut grooves into a runway that run along in the same direction as the landing shuttle, that it helps channel the water away from the runway, and it significantly reduced any potential for hydroplaning for the space shuttle because uh, a hydroplaning space shuttle would be a space shuttle out of control. And many highways now and airports have this grooved concrete. So as part of my research, I spoke to Leah Del Real, and she's a senior project engineer for the city of Miramar, Florida, a city that uses a lot of concrete for roads, and they also receive a lot of rain. And I, I talked to her about the effectiveness of these lines. Now, this is what she tells me, that concrete can't even come close to absorbing all the rain produced even by a small thunderstorm. And she says road crews are supposed to pour concrete, it, 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 when they pour the roadway in concrete, there's supposed to be a high point in the center that's supposed to slope all, uh, so the rainwater will flow to the sides of the road. However, while you do want that positive drainage and the general direction of drainage to go away from the middle and over to the sides, you don't really want that kind of water flow all the time because, especially in a, in a big rainstorm, because a smooth sheet of, of water flowing across the road in front of you is going to be bad and that will cause <laughs> hydroplaning. She calls it sheet flow, and she says it's really easy for cars to hydroplane on that. So Leah told me that even though these longitudinal lines, these grooves, they present a minor obstacle to water flowing easily from the center of the road to the side of the road, what they also do is make the water turbulent drive over it, which helps with tire traction in a rainstorm. She says it's the same principle on tires, and why it's so important to have good tread. Not only do the grooves channel water, they help with traction by increasing force on the remaining area. There's a point at which uh, water flows uh, like a sheet anyway if you have so much coming down. So if you have high enough water volume, there is, there's a point where the grooves don't really help much, but they're way better than doing nothing. And as for the grooves affecting the life of your tires, Leah tells me that every driving surface has texture. Even a smooth driving surface has voids and grooves and irregularities if you look at it up close. For example, a freshly paved asphalt roadway, the blacktop, generally has some small voids that serve the same function as the grooves in the concrete. They actually help with drainage and they prevent sheet flow. And the grooves in the asphalt would be a terrible way to, to actually help you out from a material standpoint, because the asphalt isn't nearly as durable as the concrete, it's softer, 
uh, and, and grooving the asphalt would result in one giant continuous pothole. <laughs> we don't want that. And a surface that doesn't have any texture, pretty much as smooth as you can get, ice. And while ice won't wear out your tire, it's not what you want to be driving on because it turns out that smooth, slick surfaces are unsafe. So you do want some kind of texture. Uh, it's it's a lot like when you're laying down tile. You want some kind of a texture for the tile to hold on to. Uh, it's the same uh, for road surfaces. It's the same for just about any. You want some uh, tackiness, some irregularities, so you can actually get better traction. And the price of that traction is having your tires wear down a little bit over time. It's It's really what they're supposed to do. It, it, it's why they grip the road and, and do such a good job of gripping the road because there is some irregularities in, in the pavement surface. Now, Leah tells me the grooves should be cut nearly longitudinal to the driving surface. She says there may be a little bit of variation because the grinding machine is run by a human operator, but the grooves are not going to be uh, such an obstacle that it's impossible to overcome that sucks your vehicle across a couple lanes of traffic. They're, they're pretty small, and anyone operating a, a car should be actively driving anyway, which means you're paying attention to the road conditions, the surrounding traffic, the weather, and, and actively steering the car. And, and winds in a thunderstorm can generate enough force in your car to, that, that moves you around a little bit, as can some of these grooves, depending on how deep they're uh, rutted and also how straight they are, if they are curved or irregular, it might move your car around a little bit. But she says drivers have a responsibility to maintain control of their vehicles at all of t- at all times. And I have heard uh, from motorcyclists after doing this story saying that it's really a challenge for them. And yeah, I agree. What's worse for a motorcyclist is when they've rotomilled a asphalt surface and you have those really bad grooves. Uh, before they finish the final paving, then it's really nasty for a motorcyclist because then it's gravelly and then you have uh, those really bad grooves in there and that's much worse than any of these concrete grooves that you might have on there. But anyway, that is basically the answer for your question, Um, Jackie. They put those grooves in concrete roads for water drainage and to give you a little bit more traction. So boom, there you go. Now, one of the major issues for battery plug-in electric cars going forward is where are you going to charge them, especially while you are not at your home base? People could charge them at their homes if they have a home where they uh, have a plug, and and some people get the bigger chargers, uh, the more powerful chargers to charge it a little bit faster. But there are people who live in apartments, let's say on the fifth floor, uh, they're going to have a challenge uh, charging conveniently. You're not going to run an extension cord from your fifth floor apartment building to the street. Another problem is when you are far from home, let's think road trips, maybe to a national park. There are some options popping up as this will be a huge need in the coming years. Joining me now to talk about these issues is Diane Dandineau, the CEO of iPower Alliance, and they install integrated EV charging stations in unique spots. Diane, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving Crazy podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. I'm excited to be here. We are huge in Spain, Australia this this month, and also in the UK, so we are world-famous. 
Wow, that is awesome. <laughs> there you go. Before we get into the issues with battery plug-in electric vehicles, let's talk about Diane for a minute. What exactly is iPower Alliance, and how did you become involved? Well, I actually founded iPower Alliance about four years ago after being in the solar industry for, well, starting over 30 years ago, and then most recently the last 15 years doing solar and also a lot of efficiency work. Um, even starting in kind of the climate change education world. And so I've had an interest in the bigger movement towards more sustainability and then got into solar because I it was a way to actually apply it. So four years ago, I had a vision. I wanted to bring solar and storage and efficiency as a holistic approach. And then now car charging to our customers. It seems like it's a interesting time to be in the solar uh, slash charging uh, space, if you will, because we have so many uh, car companies now that have either partially or almost fully shifted to creating electric vehicles, the battery plug-in electric vehicles. And there will be the need, obviously, to charge w whether it's at home, whether you're in an apartment or on the road. So it seems like this is the time to be in at least this business. Yeah, it, it actually uh, is a, a really good, well, addition to our business. I mean, the other part is I've been in the automotive industry and software for years, and then uh, in the last uh, four or five years, focusing on uh, doing solar for dealerships, and they need electric chargers to charge the cars they're selling. So it has been a really good um, addition to our business and, and really had to become you know fairly expert in the area. And then uh, this past year, I was able to get my own 100% EV to drive. And what kind is it? It's a Kia Nero. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, as I told you earlier, I have a Chevy Volt. I talk a lot about it here. I, I, I like the ability to be able to not have any range anxiety. So if I need to drive somewhere far long distance, I can just keep fueling it up. Um, I think that's why I like hydrogen electric vehicles more than the battery plug-in electric vehicles. You can fuel them faster than you can with a, a battery plug-in vehicle. And, and maybe that's a good transition to talk about uh, this DCF, See charger station that you installed near the Rocky Mountain National Park. First, before we talk about that, explain what a DCFC charger is and why it's better than a level one or a level two charger that most people might be familiar with if they're familiar with plugging in their car. Right, great. So DCFC stands for DC fast charger. Uh, DC is the type of power that actually is feed directly to your battery. A battery is DC versus AC. And I, uh, so our power grid is AC. The batteries are DC. What happens with a DC FC, which is also level three, is that the charger does the transition between AC to DC, which it can then quickly charge the car. So all that work is done in the charger. They're a lot more expensive, but that's done there. And then the car charges fast. In an AC charger, there's a small converter built in the car that takes it from AC to DC. That's slower. That's kind of the basic differences. Because char charging. Yeah, and, and charging these vehicles takes a long time. I have the ability on mine to either go uh, from one level to another level, and it, and it will charge 
the entire battery, it only holds, I think, 15 or 16 kilowatts, so it's really not a lot. It maybe get 45 yeah. miles, 50 miles on a charge, unlike a lot of the other newer EVs. Mine's a 2014 vehicle, and so the newer ones do hold up a lot more uh, kilowatt hours. So it does take some time to fill these up. So how do we get over this hurdle? How, how do you get uh, over the hurdle of, well, having to wait a couple of hours to get a full charge out of it? So yeah, absolutely. That's going to be the fast charge option, and that's actually what you're going to see out in the world. So I guess coming back to thinking about you know somebody who's owning an electric car and deciding to buy electric car, the first thing is, um, you know, looking at the whole picture, it's a it's a mind shift change. So I charge at home. Actually, I have a 110 plug at home, and it takes about if I'm completely depleted, it takes three days to charge my car. But usually, I can actually charge overnight to get to refill the car on an average out and about day at just 110. So if I need to charge my car faster, I have a five-minute walk, two-minute drive to a level two charger down the street that I've been using. And that will charge the car easily in eight hours. Now, I have a 64-kilowatt-hour battery in my car. And so that's the level two will charge about eight hours um, if it's fairly depleted. But then if I'm out around in the world, what most people do is about a half hour charge at a DCFC charger, a fast charger. Half an hour charge will get usually about a half a tank of gas or a half a battery charge on most cars. Or if you need a full charge, you could about an hour works on a fast charger. Now, is that going to be something like if you think, well, I need to fill fast like I'm used to at the gas station. It's it's a shift in mindset. If I'm actually only needing to go at a gas station once a month because mostly I'm charging at home, I'm willing to do that hour. Or if I'm traveling to the next, like I drove to uh, uh, Buena Vista and I got there and I charged on level two all day while I was out playing with my friends. I had a plan. And so anyway. There's options, but it's a different mindset. That's what I keep telling my wife, is that she doesn't have an electric car. But like you said, she is comfortable right now just driving home, and then the light comes on in the, <laughs> in the gas gauge, and she goes, oh, I can just pull into the next, the most convenient place, and boom, five minutes later, she's filled up, and, and off she goes again for another week. But like you said, it is a, a mind shift. It is a mind change. And there, there are some people who aren't going to be able to figure that out. Is, is that going to be a big educational campaign that has to happen? Or is it just everybody's going to have to uh, figure this out or they're going to be sitting on the side of the road and not going anywhere? My crystal ball is um, fuzzy, but, you know, I think I have some ideas of what, what maybe we expect. So, first of all, um, batteries are, are just going to get better and, and faster. Chargers are going to get faster. There's so much technology that is being developed right now that's going to improve all these things. I actually envision that we're going to have the faster charging kind of gas station scenarios available, and then we're going to be doing the all of the above. We're going to have the people who can charge at home, we may install their own level two. They'll only need one of those fast chargers on special trips. Other people will maybe have the gas station down, the charger station down the street uh, that they go to, you know, once a week or every couple days. Just is it, and then they put it in their uh, plan. But I see everything kind of speeding up. But I also, 
I believe there's going to be other technologies where hydrogen and some other things may be showing up as well. But it's the right vehicle for the right person for the right application. Can any car that is a battery plug-in electric right now use a level one, level two, level three charging? Because I've seen that Tesla has their own deal. They want to be separate. They want to be Tesla. I get it. But it, will everybody else be able to have their uh, be able to share this electric technology, or do you have to have different couplers that go into your car? So that is actually a point of uh, that I think is a problem in our industry. Still, there's too many uh, options, and there's too many uh, different. Like Tesla does their own thing, and another company wants to do their own thing. We have to have interoperability. But one one thing to know is that all of the fully electric cars will be able to charge at level one, level two, and level three. A lot of the potential plug-in hybrids only can charge with level two. I don't know of, uh, there might be some that can charge at level three, but mostly they're level one and level two. My guest is Diane Dandino. She's the CEO of iPower Alliance. And we're talking about the uh, future of away from home charging and uh, charging electric vehicles on the road. We were talking about road trips. And up at Rocky Mountain National Park, you were able to combine your technology with somebody else's land and actually create a station where people can then fill up. Is this the kind of thing that we're going to have to see going forward to to make it worthwhile for folks to go on road trips? Oh, absolutely. And so I thanks for bringing up that project again, because it's really an amazing project. Now, what iPower Alliance did there and is, is doing is that we are bringing in uh, solar and then we put in two level two chargers and we're working with the customer uh, selected a product called a free wire charger which is a really interesting technology it is a DCFC charger but it is uh, a level two connection to the grid which made it way less expensive to install in terms of infrastructure, and it has a built-in battery. So what happens is that battery gets charged, and then it can deliver the power really fast to the car. So you get 120, up to 120 kilowatts delivered. So that charger can do a CCS connector, which I have on the Nero and a lot of, um, of the u.s manufactured cars and then it has a chatamo connector which is what the nissan leaf uses and then the owner of the project jim sloan has a tesla and a converter and he can plug into the chatamo and charges tesla this is really important that sites like this are installed everywhere so people can travel and charge their cars bring their electric car charge their car and continue on their travels so how do you get a battery large enough to charge, uh, to, uh, to, to really hold enough electricity to then charge the cars? Because what you're saying is you go from the grid to a battery to the car, which is going to be mm-hmm. a faster transition for the folks that are just trying to charge up their car and then keep on rolling. Right. So the battery that's in this, in this charger actually can charge three cars. Uh, so that's slow charging and then... And then it delivers three cars fast. Now, ideally, or most likely, you're not going to have more than three cars stacked up to charge. And once the, the battery is depleted, it actually charges at 20 kilowatts, which is a fast level two um, charger. So it's not doesn't stop charging, but it does provide up to three cars 
uh, super fast charging. And so, it fits in, in this charger. So it's really the first, the early bird does, does get the uh, fast charge worm at this, at this station. Right. <laughs> but we're, what we're seeing, though, is happening. It's like when he gets busy enough that cars are charging, he's got a second location for another charger, fast charger. And then there's uh, two level, actually four level two chargers on site as well. So there's options for people. And we don't expect at this stage that we're going to be overrun yet. I'm speaking with Diane Dandineau. She's the CEO of iPower Alliance. You can find them at iPowerAlliance.com about the future of charging your electric car, as you're, especially when you're on the road. How much does an installation like this cost, and who pays for all that equipment, the chargers, that battery pack, and, and the, char- and the uh, electricity coming into that battery and then back out to cars? That was a lot of questions right Sorry. there. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, you know, there's, um, in this case, uh, the owner of the property in, is investing in this project. He owns the entire uh, location. It's the National Park Village, which has a lot of great amenities. He has some tenants, a grocery store and uh, retail and laundromat and a, um, a nice restaurant right there. So the whole idea is actually to provide a location for people to stop, charge their car, go get some food. So the owner invested in this and, um, you know, projects like this, I don't want to definitely give you his investment, but it was significant. Um, you know, level two chargers are anywhere between 10 and $25,000 a piece to install. And then level three chargers are anywhere from and the super high speed ones are a hundred to hundred to 200,000 to install. I mean, that's, they have a, a big upfront cost with the equipment and the infrastructure and the installation right now the state is offering grants which really do help with that investment and so that's a a big motivation Um, and then just the bigger question of the investment those are who are visionaries are seeing that this is needed and have been willing to be part of the solution and this investment and believe in it is this something Mm -hmm. that is going to be a profitable in endeavor for a lot of folks where they're going to see this as, yep, I'm going to be able to make some money, not only uh, recoup some of the money that I'm um, that's going out for the actual electricity, but it also gives me foot traffic. It almost generates uh, instant business because they have to stop and get a cup of coffee for the next half an hour while they're waiting for their charge. Uh, they have to browse through my gift shop and, and they'll buy a trinket of some sort. So is, is it going to be a profitable uh, business model for folks going forward so we've been doing a lot of modeling on different project uh, designs with solar without solar and different utilities and so the answer is if you have enough traffic if you have enough charges yes we can you could have a profitable business if you put in some equipment and no one ever uses it you never sell any electricity uh, you won't necessarily make money on that investment for the charging. Maybe it brings you customers. But I think the opportunities are where you have a situation, like I think the shopping center scenario makes a ton of sense. Somebody comes in, they know they're going to be shopping for half an hour or more, can plug in and charge. And if they have enough traffic and enough charges, then they can make money on the equipment, make money on the customers. But it, it was really about the number of car 
cars, it does matter how we design the system with the utility. Some are very difficult to be, well, we just talked about those demand charges, but I think it's possible and it really does uh, equate to traffic. Usually people don't want to give up their money for nothing. So right. it, it, if he's doing this kind of investing in this kind of technology, he's probably looking at rewards down in the future. So is he charging for folks to uh, charge up their vehicles? And is it a different charge if I plug into the level two or the level three? Yes, that's a great question. So the level threes uh, are the most expensive. You get the fastest charge and um, the rate uh, for level threes around the state are actually in the 40 cents per kilowatt hour uh, pricing. And then uh, the level twos are about half that as an average. Um, and then um, it depends on the site availability and kind of what the market's doing but that's kind of how it's running and the thing the way to look at this is that level four and that price is kind of the same with a gallon of gas level two is about half the price of a gallon of gas so you kind of decide well i want to save a little money i'm willing to wait longer or i want the fastest charge i'm going to pay what i would have paid in my other car right in my uh, right now at least the the kilowatt hour at my home is i think about 11 or 12 cents a kilowatt hour Um, And and there have been some areas around, uh, especially uh, big cities, not only here in Colorado, but especially in California, where you have tiered billing, uh, where you will find different prices at different types, times of day, different uh, parts of the year, where it's going to cost you more or less to taking uh, power off the grid. Is some of that factored into the pricing here or is it just going to be, you think uh, uh, this will be the price and we're going to stick with it for a while and then maybe make adjustments down the road? So that's a great question. And it's a lot of it is the utility dependent. And in the current situation in Colorado, there are kind of flat rate billing and then there's demand rate billing, and then there's time of use. So that's what you're talking about, is changing the billing based on time of day. There's a time of use rate. They'll actually change the amount you pay for your charge based on the time of the day. Um, Up in Estes, part of what we did was, why we put in this particular free wire with a battery is that they had a demand limit. So if we stayed in a certain rate structure, he could, sell have a flat rate for his energy charges and still make some money on the project so yes he's looking for a charging return in addition to amenities for his tenants but yes he's going to get a return on that investment if we had demand charges if we were at a different rate he would have lost money on those fast chargers every year and it just would not have made financial sense to do it so we found a way to put together a project that had a positive return on investment. And that's a big part of what iPower does is that we do a deep analysis for our customers to help them understand and decide what's going to be the best business case for them. So it could really hurt states like California that have so many different tiered billing uh, to another state that just has uh, a power company that has one uh, tier or has lower costs for uh, their power rates. Um, it, It seems like it could be detrimental for some states that want to have, like California, they would want to put more of these stations in uh, in place, but they're they're billing right now, and the way they uh, they charge for electricity could could hamper that effort. 
you know that's we're seeing that all over the place so that is utility by utility and yes it's um that is one of the challenges this idea so demand charges and maybe people don't necessarily understand because at home you usually just pay a flat rate but commercial businesses pay a rate that has two parts of it normally a energy rate where they pay a flat rate for the energy they buy per kilowatt hour but they also pay a demand rate and the demand is the highest instantaneous usage of that business over a 15 minute period for a month that's how uh excel and others do this so i could pay have my instantaneous use at my business be 100 kw and if I'm paying, let's say, $16 a KW. That's $1,600 of my bill that I have to pay. And the crazy thing about these fast chargers, if I have a 50-kilowatt fast charger and I happen to charge that car at the high point of the day, that's 50 times $16 that would I have to pay for that charger. Suddenly, the economics start going out the window. And we're seeing our dealerships have those issues. So that's some of the challenges we're trying to help them solve. Yeah, we're talking eight hundred dollars, or yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that, <laughs> that's a lot of money um, yeah. to try to charge up your car that fast. Uh, speaking of dealerships, as I'm speaking to Diane Dandeneau, the CEO of iPower Alliance, about the future of really a way charging technology for electric vehicles. You folks helped um, a dealership up in Frederick, Colorado, up north of Denver, uh, set up a a system where you have solar power, solar panels that are also a way to shield the cars from any hail damage or sun damage and stuff like that. So tell me about a little bit about that project and where that power that is generated goes. Does it just go back into the grid? Does it go to the dealership or does it go to, let's say, a battery power uh, charging station? Yeah, well, that's a great. Uh, so uh, Stap Interstate Toyota is a customer I've worked with for a couple years now. We installed a 290 kilowatt solar project integrated with a VPS, Vehicle Protection Systems, hail canopy solution covering all of their inventory. Um, they had uh, several, a couple of really bad hail storms back to back, which really forced them to do something else to protect their inventory. And so we were had the opportunity to do that. That solar powers their building. It's almost 100% of their energy use. And uh, so that power goes to the building, though it is net metered. So during the day, they produce more energy. It goes back to the grid during the day. And at night, they get to use that power. And at the end of the year, we have pretty much covered their energy at the dealership. So that project is was really um, great. And then the next thing they decided to do is since the state was offering some grants and Toyota's about to release a new electric car, I think coming first quarter now, uh, they wanted to be prepared and we got a grant for them to install a 50 kilowatt DC fast charger. And we just finished that installation and that'll be public so people can come and charge their cars, whoever's driving around. And um, and that one's going to be actually it is that one's attached to the grid and we'll be able to get basically the contributed power to the grid is um is going to be able to kind of directly power that right at the time of the sun shining but they will be buying the power from the utility for that charger is this is is this what the future of finding 
places to charge is going to look like. It's not going to be a corner gas station. It's going to be the dealership. It's going to be the hotel uh, near there. It's going to be the coffee shop or the restaurant that wants to bring you in for a half an hour or an hour so you can charge up your car. Is that the way this is going to go? So we're going to need a lot more of these little maybe charging stations rather than a large gas station. I think we're going to have all of the above. I think it's going to be a lot of people are investing in chargers right now. I'm seeing some chargers going places like, why did you put one there? And then other ones are in locations that get tons of use. Uh, it's, it really is, we're still figuring it out. I think you know everyone who can charge at home should charge at home because it's just simple. And then we're using power that's generated overnight, which is after the demand, high demand time, and overnight, that's when the cheapest power is for the utilities, and that's when we should be charging cars. But out in the world, I have a friend who plans her whole shopping week around going to Whole Foods and charging her car that day. It's like, uh, you know, where people go and where they're going to be for a period of time, I think is going to make a ton of sense. Obviously, a, a bar might not be the best place to hang out and charge up your car. And... <laughs> get back in uh but that that might happen as well right yeah well <laughs> i mean you know there's whole foods and then there's and then there's uh, a bar uh we <laughs> exactly i'm speaking to diane dandino ceo of ipower alliance about the future of of being away from your home or or and and away charging for electric vehicles we were talking about charging up at your home but there's a lot of people especially in areas like downtown denver downtown nashville there's there's a lot of cities that are really energizing their downtown area to get people to live in the downtown area and they're building a lot of apartments and condominiums and it's not easy to charge up your electric vehicle if you have one if you're parked on the street or parked in their little parking lot um and run a a, a extension cord down from the seventh right, floor, dude. you know, down to the street. So how, how yeah. do we get over that hurdle or do these apartment complexes then have to install uh, chargers for almost every uh, space that's available there? Well, I think that that probably is ultimately what's going to happen is that you're going to go outside. And, I mean, you go down a city street, you see a, 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 a meter every space or two you know we probably are going to see a transition to uh seeing chargers every space or two eventually but this is going to take time but what we're seeing with new construction right now i'm working with a, a couple of uh how, low-income housing new construction sites and they are pre-conduiting all their parking spots in their garage and basically becoming charger ready so there is an awareness that they have to add the infrastructure. And that is really good, probably the most difficult part of all of this is that we don't have enough infrastructure to electrify everything, uh, but we have to start. And anytime we're building something new, we have to start making sure we are ready to add charging and electrification of, of our uh, parking spots. And you just mentioned briefly uh, low-income neighborhoods. They are probably going to be the last to catch up to the electric vehicle uh, markets, and we're still going to need gas stations uh, for the folks that can't buy electric vehicles or won't be able to plug in. How long of a transformation do you think it's going to be until we are seeing more electric vehicles than we are seeing internal combustion engine vehicles on the roads? Um, I... I think we're 
years from that because we've got vehicles that are, have long lifespans that are already on the road. I, I have a, a Nissan, a 2015 Nissan Rogue, um, in addition to the electric car that I drive for our, our, basically my business car. And, you know, I'm not going to get rid of that car because of it's runs great and it, it's my camping vehicle. And But there's a lot of people, there's going to be a lot of years that we have. The big push for the state is really uh, by 2030 to have a million vehicles on the road. And then there's millions more out there, obviously. You just mentioned going up into the mountains and, and using your truck for camping and and other things. Uh, uh, if you're going to go up in the mountains, you need something that can hold a lot of charge. You, you, it's that, I think that's one of the problems with truck uh, delivery, using having trucks as, as electric vehicles. Uh, trying to go from Denver up to the Eisenhower Tunnel and over to Vail Pass and over to Grand Junction <laughs> might be challenging for a uh, battery-powered truck. How, how much it's going to weigh, how much it can hold in a charge, how long it would take to recharge a vehicle like that, and how much it would cost. It seems like the trucking industry is going to be a challenge to try to make electric. Yeah. I, I don't know what that's going to look like. There's certainly a lot of people who are looking at that. It's actually the short haul uh, runs that they're looking to electrify. So manageable, even like bu school buses that drive, you know, 60 miles or something or less. They, you can manage those. You have a plan. The, the long haul stuff, I really don't know how that's going to, evolve but you know even to the personal trucks ford has introduced the lightning and they're going to put a huge battery in that i don't know exactly what size but it's designed to be able to go uh carry load and go some distance and it really comes down to then understanding the capacity of that vehicle before you just head off and go across you know where you want to go i did drive my car to buena vista um, it was 150 miles, but I used over 200 miles in energy to get up the hill. Coming back, I said 150 miles, I used about 100 miles of energy to get down the hill. So it actually is, a, is an interesting technology because it, it can also regain energy with uh, gravity. Is the grid that we currently have able to handle this kind of a load as we go into the future years with so many more EVs coming on in, in the market? Um, no, not, not as it stands today. The, the utility industry is really facing um, this transition with us and looking at what it's going to take. And I think between the utility industry and energy uh professionals you know it's actually the opportunity now is to really lean on more of the all of the all of the above structure more renewable energy more energy storage more distributed energy meaning let's produce more energy locally and then use that power locally so we don't have to uh, transmit as much power as far but it's it has to happen everywhere but we're gonna have to come off as much oil and gas to renewable generated, but also uh, continue fossil generated electricity to make this work. And it's going to be a long transition.
So I think it's going to be is maybe a little bit uh, shorter than the transition into autonomous vehicles. How could autonomous vehicles <laughs> that that there's the the panacea of having just self-driving cars into an urban area that uh, fewer people are owning their own cars. So now you don't have to worry about charging it up in your apartment or your condo. But you're going to see these autonomous vehicles that are going to be out driving around. How is that technology going to play in all of this? You know, I, all of that is coming. We we certainly have autonomous vehicles on the road today. Um, again, what that looks like, I think it's this mindset shift. My guess it's going to be the younger people who are going to be uh, embracing that. And as time goes on, there will be more embracing of oh, not having to own a car. I've, I've had a car since I was 16. I can't imagine not owning a car. But I'll just throw in here what I think is pretty funny for me is that my mom, as she is aging, I'm thinking, oh, autonomous cars, driving mom around. I like that idea. <laughs> so, you know, it's coming, and it could very well allow us to have fewer cars. I mean, it's really a lot of the younger people who aren't owning as many cars. And so they're embracing Uber. They're embracing um, some of these technologies. And I think that's where we're going to be looking for our leadership in this. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, hi I know hydrogen is probably not your space for the electric vehicle market, but I, I think hydrogen is going to be a good mix to mix in with the battery plug-in vehicles because then you're not using the grid as uh, overloading the grid. You're going to have some on hydrogen, some on, on battery uh, plug-in. Uh, what do you think about the hydrogen electric vehicle technology? Well, I think it's, uh, I think it's brilliant in that you know it does provide potentially an opportunity to, um, you know, refill faster. And again, it's a, it has a lot of promise. The bigger question on that is, do you make hydrogen with fossil fuels or can you make hydrogen with renewable energy? So the more uh, hydrogen we can make from renewable energy, that really does then can work towards the goal that we have for this electrification of how do we, um, why do we even bother doing this as big as to cut fossil fuels? Well, then we need to have clean uh, electricity. And that's what we need is clean hydrogen. Well, as I talked about in the past, there is the blue and the green hydrogen. So there are ways to uh, make it with the you know, renewable energies as well as with current fossil fuels. So uh, your, your best prediction, how many, let's say in the next one year or two years, uh, how many more of these uh, charging stations are we going to see pop up around uh, the country? And then in the next five to 10 years, is it just going to be an expansive uh, exponential growth or is it just going to be a slow growth over the next five to 10 years? I think it's going to be uh, kind of on a curve. It's, it's going pretty fast right now. The biggest issues, I think there's a availability of equipment that's that's been a challenge where where we are with so many things right now but uh it is growing fast there's a ton of investment in this area as the manufacturers are going to be releasing introducing even more electric vehicles next year uh the infrastructure has got to grow quickly and the state of colorado is really uh working hard and focusing on uh, installing hundreds of chargers in the state. They're funding, uh, I am like 300 chargers in the next, I, and I shouldn't quote that one, I've got to look up the number. But um, from their charging plan, they 
are increasing the number of light duty EVs to 940,000 by 2030. And they're also uh, funding, and I'm looking for my investment to install 351 EV chargers across Colorado. So that is out of their report that um, they, they understand that if they're going to require the vehicles uh, to be sold here, they have to help with the infrastructure. Yeah, that looks like it's going to be the next big thing going forward. Well, Diane Dandeneau, the CEO of iPower Alliance, you can find them on iPowerAlliance.com. Thank you so much for uh, joining me, explaining all of this, and uh, best of luck to you in the future and and to, to, I guess, everybody who's going to be buying EVs in the future. Well, thank you very much for the time today. It's been a lot of fun to talk about this, and um, I really appreciate the thoughtful questions. This is really important. People are just learning about this now and trying to understand it, so appreciate your uh, service in this area. And if you want to get a hold of Diane, you can at iPowerAlliance.com, all one word. The I is a little I, kind of like your iPhone little I, big phone. Uh, it's iPowerAlliance.com, and it will be uh, interesting to see how this infrastructure will play out. As really you think about 100 years ago when Henry Ford started throwing out a lot of Model Ts out into the world, and there were, had to be some way to fill them up. And so then you started to see fueling stations pop up. And as part of the fueling stations, you would see uh, mechanics uh, combining their skills with fueling stations. So you can get your car worked on at the same time that you're getting it fueled up and vice versa. And so it looks like we are on that uh, cusp of of seeing new businesses pop up, new ideas come forward of how you're going to combine a charging station with, uh, I guess, maybe some kind of entertainment uh, station as well, especially in tourist towns, in uh, places where you're going to be uh, driving from uh, distance to distance and you need to charge up. Uh, Tesla's doing a really good job with that, putting their uh, fast chargers in a lot of different places. But again, you still need time, even with the... Uh, fast charging systems, you're still going to need some time. And if you're if you're willing to pay for it, then I guess you're going to charge a lot faster than if you're not willing to, to, to pay for it. It's just like if you go to Disney World. If you don't want to wait in the line, you're going to pay for it. They're talking about doing that at our ski resorts now. If you don't want to wait in the lift line, you could pay an extra 60 bucks for the day and you can avoid the lift lines altogether. Yay! I don't have 60 bucks to go skiing anyway. And now you want another 60 bucks. You know how much it is to go skiing every day? It's crazy amounts of money uh, to go uh, just <laughs> take a family of four to go skiing. I, I know. We, we, we do it. Um, and <laughs> not, not as much as I'd like uh, just because we don't have the money for it. But it would be the same thing with charging up your car. And then you're going to have to get used to uh, how you're going to pay for it and, and the uh, swiping. Because most people don't go, oh, is it free? Can I just plug in here and get some free charging? Uh, no, that you can't. Somebody's got to pay for the electricity, and uh, but it'll be interesting to see. We're on the we really are on the edge of the new businesses popping up all over the place, and so if you're looking for something to invest in, uh, there you go. <laughs> anyway, thanks again to uh, Diane for all her uh, expertise 
on all that stuff. Again, thanks for being here. As always, you can always get a hold of me on any of the contact links at the uh, in the description of this fine program. You can always call the listener hotline at 303-832-0217. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.